and read along with me as I read in your hearing Acts chapter 7, verses 54 to 60, the end of the chapter. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that your word, sharper than any two-edged sword, would cut our heart this day. If it needs to cut our heart to expose our sin, may it be that we would be cut. For our hearts need to be circumcised and set apart to you, which they truly do. Cut our hearts. Draw them to you. Draw our hearts in repentance and love for you. That the power of what Christ has accomplished, that it would be effective this day in the proclamation of your word and amongst your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we finally come to the close of chapter 7. It's been a long series of sermons to preach on this fairly long sermon from Stephen. And we finally come to a close and uh, a close that no minister would really want to have at the end of his sermon. But maybe, as I was discussing with Sarah just moments ago, that would be the most ideal way to end your life. To be preaching the glory of God before the people of God. And to actually see that glory for real in its fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. There is so much, as I have said, from sermon after sermon on this particular passage, so much packed into the words of Stephen before the scribes and the priest. Potent words, words of judgment and warning, words of grace and mercy, words of reminder of privilege, of being able to be those who have been given the word of God, to even have Jesus manifested before them in the flesh, even to have the privilege to participate in a 
strange but gracious way, even in the crucifixion, to see those things happen and to be alive the day when Jesus rose from the grave and fulfilled the things that they have been studying. These are the scribes and the priests that should, among all, know what is actually accomplished. What Stephen has proclaimed here and what has its great potency comes to a head in these final words, in the, in the very mix, in the moment where he is in the midst of being the first martyr in the New Testament. They're the most powerful words that truly cut to the heart of the hearers of the scribes and the Pharisees. This word here that I read, some of your versions may have even interpreted it as it is in the actual Greek. This word enraged means to be cut of heart. And we've been talking about the uncircumcised heart of the hearers. And here we have this moment where the word is meant to be a play in that, where these guys are now cut of heart, but not in the same way as those who were cut of heart in Acts 2. Maybe. Because as we will see as we go into what he is saying, these very few words, very potent words, is both judgment being exposed upon the hearers, but I also believe that even in their rage, there is a glimmer of hope of grace. There is a term here in the middle of this passage that is so very powerful and so very important for us to get a grip of this morning and for the rest of our life and to continue to be amazed and in awe of. Stephen uses the words, son of man. As we go through this passage, may it be that we look at these other connecting passages and that you will have, as much as humanly possible, a glimpse of understanding of how powerful it was for Stephen to tell his hearers that he sees the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He is tapping into the prophecy of Daniel Probably a prophecy that I would say that as a scribe and a priest is one of the most mysterious prophecies throughout the whole Old Testament. So much that when Daniel received this vision about the Son of Man, he said he was disturbed at the end of that. That it was such a powerful and potent vision of what was to come and is now being manifested right here before you in this particular narrative. Because what is going on is that this prophecy of Daniel is being fulfilled, continuing to be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But the amazing thing, as a preface for you, as we go into these particular passages, that that prophecy of Daniel talks about the saints of God being given that same glory. And what Stephen is doing before 
the scribes and the Pharisees is that as he is pointing back to the fulfillment of Jesus being, or that the life and work of Jesus being the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel, the manifestation of that power and that glory is being transferred to his people in this moment in the book of Acts and in the preaching and in the death of Stephen. Now those are big words to introduce with, but it's a, it's a powerful end to a, a tremendous one-chapter ministry. We, only, we get introduced to Stephen in the beginning of chapter 7, and he's dead by the end of it. Now, we don't know what all he may have done before he was called to be a deacon. We don't know what, how much time really lapsed between the time that he was called and when, we pre, when he preached his sermon. They don't give us that. It seems pretty rapid. Luke has laid out the narrative in a very quick way to get to the, to the meat of what kind of um, thinking that Stephen had in the, in the sermon that he had and the, and the power and the manifestation of what God intended for his people. We don't get to see all of those things, but what we have about Stephen is powerful. And we see here in Stephen's life really the example of a true, balanced, faithful Christian. What Luke is laying out for us throughout all of Acts is that all of the fulfillment of what God has been promising throughout the Old Testament is now being laid on the church. He starts with the ascension But from that moment on, it's the Spirit filling the church and moving the church along into the fulfillment of the kingdom of God. This is a part of that. This is a significant transition of this tremendous prophecy being put down on earth in real life and in real time to God's people. So as we go through these passages today, I want you to think about that context, this Huge context. This is not just a situation that you might be accustomed to when you've heard missionary stories. How many of you have seen movies or read books about missionaries that have died at the hands of their persecutors? I would anticipate nearly all of you. Now, it, it is very similar, and I'm not saying this is all disconnected, and I think there's, they're very much connected to what's going on in here in Stephen, but this is an introductory to that, all of those stories that you may have been inspired by as a kid, as you look at those stories, is amazing stories. One of my, my favorite stories, just as a quick side note, is the story about how the gospel came into Korea. You know, you all know that my background is, is Korean. I actually got to see my, my only, uh, I have two Korean relatives in the United States, my mom and my aunt, my aunt and, and, um, and her uh, new husband, Pihan, were, were here yesterday and we got to have dinner with them. And I prayed before that meal that God would give me some access to be able to present the gospel to them. And he did not open any doors other than the presentation of my family. And, and I asked that you would be continuing to pray for my, my Aunt Suni. But Korea used to be a very closed society when it came to Christians. And when they began to start going in with the gospel, they had major pushback. And it was primarily in Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea, is where a lot of people went to try to bring the gospel. And the king there was so opposed to it that he was successful in annihilating, um, to a large degree, much of the missionary work 
that came into there. And it was one particular governor of this one region that he um, loved to take the weapons of his um, enemies and showcase them on the walls of his hut or his house. And I, I should have written this down. The, but later on, and many years later on, after this one particular king had done that, there was a missionary named Jeremiah Judson. Is that right? Does that sound? That sound? All right. Well, I knew I was going to get that wrong. He was, <clears throat> he was going through a lot of things in his life. He lost his wife and some other missionary work in China. And he ran into some Koreans that were in China and decided to go into Korea with them and to try to, once again, bring the gospel into Korea. And when they got there, he had brought some Bibles for them to, 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 to have um, as they go and minister. And they was encountered by a particular Korean man who was a Christian. And he was like, oh, that is so good that you have brought us Bibles. Now we have more of what we already had. And he was like, well, what are you talking about? You already have the word of God? And he said, yes, we have already have a church. We already have a building, and we already have some of these scriptures with us. And he said, well, take me to this church. And they took him to that particular hut, and on the walls of their church were the scriptures. Because in time, when that particular governor died, this guy ended up buying that particular house and started the first church. So the very trophies of the persecution or the persecutors of the persecutors became the seed of the, one of the first churches in Korea, in Pyongyang. And I think that's just an amazing story about how God will take the very persecution typically all the time as the pinnacle of that example being in Christ. But here again, we have it in Stephen. But I want you to see that this is just not another one of those stories. As great as that story is, and as tremendous as the story is, this is transformative to a fulfillment of something that God is wanting to display for us in the book of Acts, that this is the next stage in the time of the redemptive history of what God has been doing for his church when we get to this moment, this is a pinnacle moment and a call for the church. So that's the context that I want to lay out for you. And as we go and look at the book of Daniel and some other things, I want you to be thinking about that. But then, just as I said, to, to maybe step back and look at the big context, it is very applicable and extremely applicable, specifically for the church, that we would see it today in our own culture. That as we think about the things that are going on and pushing against the church, that we do take these great principles, but not just as examples, but as the empowerment of what we are capable of doing through Christ in the church today. So I do want you to look at this through the template of what the culture has. But before we can even act in the, the context or, or in the culture of what we have before us today... We must have this close to home. We must see how this empowerment, this example, this work of God must be manifested in and through us 
and that we would see the example of Stephen to be the calling for us, that the, the characters, the characteristics of who, what Stephen, who Stephen was is to be the character of the people of God to this day because the character of Stephen is a direct reflection of the character of Jesus Christ. So here we obviously have Stephen's death. His obituary could be written straight from the beginning of this chapter. If you flip over to the beginning, actually not the, the beginning of chapter 7, I should have said chapter 6. I, I said that the, the introduction of Stephen was in chapter 7. It's actually in chapter 6 and goes into 7. My apology there. If you go to the beginning of chapter 6 of Acts and just look at the first few verses, you can see how they could pull out of this particular section of the chapter the character of who Stephen was. And this would make a very good obituary, even though for us in this moment is an introduction. In verse 5 of chapter 6, it said that Stephen was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. In chapter 8, he was full of grace and power, doing great wonders and signs. Chapter 6, 10, verse 10, and when he spoke, there was a wisdom in a spirit that they could not oppose. And then in verse 15, his face was like the face of an angel, which as we know in the scriptures, that this is reflective of being before the glory of God, being in the presence of God. So as we think about that particular obituary of who Stephen is, and we think about the grand story of what's going on in Acts and the fulfillment of Jesus' work through the person of Jesus Christ, but now through the reigning proclamation of his people, let us take a moment to, to go back and to look at what caused these scribes and priests to be enraged, to have their hearts cut apart, but more in a, in a bad way of exposing them in their, their bitterness and their anger? What would cause them to want to hold their ears when Stephen said that I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God the Father? Well, first of all, let's look at what's going on in their heart. If you go to First Hebrews chapter 4, verse 11, it says, Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. In this particular passage, we are told that the power of God's word is like a two-edged sword, is sharper than two-edged sword, piercing beyond into our soul, into our spirit, exposing us naked before the eyes of God. 
Here their hearts are being cut open before themselves and bitterness is coming out. But why? Why is there bitterness in these particular words? Why is it that when Stephen says, and he's looking and he's gazing upon, he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, think about what Jesus said. In Mark chapter 14, verse 58, it says, We heard him say, this is the scribes and the, the high priest, we heard him say, and this is talking about Jesus, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet about this their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. And coming with the clouds of heaven. And look at how the high priest responded. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witness do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. The reason that they are so upset at what Stephen is saying is that it is qualifying And it is affirming the very thing that Jesus said he was, that he is the Son of Man. And it made them angry then, and it made them even angrier now, because they're seeing the work being accomplished. And that sword is going deeper and deeper into their heart as they are encountering Jesus Christ. And the power of Jesus Christ through the early church, that sword is going deeper and deeper into their heart. But think about it just for a moment, that this whole concept of the Son of Man being at the right hand of God the Father, this isn't just something that the scribes and the Pharisees were consumed with. That when Jesus, when he was about his ministry in the Gospels, the disciples even wrangled about this. You all remember this in Mark chapter 10, verse 38. They had come to Jesus, and they were talking to him. They had recognized Jesus' power. They had recognized that Jesus was great. I think they were still trying to put all of this in their mind about him being the Messiah, but they argued about who was going to get to sit on the right or on the left of Jesus Christ. This is something that they longed for because they knew the prophecy of Daniel. And they knew that in the prophecy of Daniel that this authority and this power would be transferred to the saints. They knew that if they were the disciples of this one who is the Son of Man, that this would somehow or another be accomplished in them. And I think the insight that we get by understanding this wrangling of the disciples is they were still very confused about the nature of this kingdom. Remember, Daniel, when he got the prophecy, he's not like us where he has the full revelation of God. And so he was mesmerized by the prophecy that was in Daniel. 
And so it's been like that for the whole Old Covenant people, that as they thought about what was going on, that I have not got a chance to read for you yet, they were mesmerized by that particular power, and that that power would actually come to people. So they were arguing with that with Jesus. But I want you to think about what Jesus said in answer to the disciples. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? I want to just stop there and highlight. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Think about what the Lord has instituted and the two sacraments for his church. And they said to him, we are able, just like us, we come to, we're, we're able, we're going to go to church. We are able, Lord, we're able to do this. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John for coming to Jesus about this. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be among you. But whoever shall be great among you must be your Dekanios, your deacon, your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as ransom for many. Jesus himself said, That as we think about the power and the glory of the Son of Man, and that power and glory being bestowed upon his people, he reminded his disciples what the nature of that would look like through the cup and through the baptism that he would endure. And says, you will be this. My disciples will receive this. As they receive this calling, they also will receive this cup in this baptism, which is reflective of his death and his calling as a deacon, a servant. Who do we have here but the first deacon called in the New Testament? And very rapidly, Luke is bringing us to the very calling that Jesus said would happen upon the servant's of his kingdom. So turn with me now, if you would, to Daniel chapter 7, starting with verse 9. And we're changing gears here. We're going from a type of narrative to a very, very poetic vision. I uh, recently, I think I may have even mentioned to some of you, that I've seen the movie Dune, and, and the movie Dune is an amazing distinction to many things that are in the movie theaters right now. And it's, it's very, very poetic. And the imagery is very 
beautiful and it's very refreshing. It, 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 it's so different than what we have coming out of Hollywood right now. It really goes to the senses in a way that we're, the, this other things that are out there are like candy and soft drinks. They, they really put the time to, to dig out of us this imagination, even how they do some of the scenes. And when it's good to have that kind of thinking as we look at this vision. You have to remember that Daniel is seeing a vision. It's not laying everything out very specifically like I am in my conversation to you. So you have to put your mind into how what Daniel is seeing and to see the beauty in the power of the vision that Daniel is explaining to us here in this chapter. Because it is where if you can get as much as you can humanly possibly this morning to get your mind into that, I think it would be a tremendous encouragement to you, especially as you may consider different strivings that you have in your own family and different strivings that you see in our nation, different strivings you may see in our communities and strivings that you see in the church, that what Daniel is seeing here has come to reality in Jesus Christ. And is being manifested in the church right now in reality. Even though Daniel was disturbed, this is meant to be a tremendous encouragement of the victory of God and the victory of God's people. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9. It says, As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands and thousands served him, and ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are the four kings who shall rise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom 
forever, forever, and ever. Here we have this tremendous vision of the Ancient of Days and his splendor and his glory. In this, you know, you read Ezekiel, it's crazy too. The, the things that are in Ezekiel's visions about the glory of God and the wills and the flames and the power. And here we have this stream of fire coming out from his throne displaying the power of God, and then the thousands serving him. But then we have, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And this term, Son of Man, is so powerful. It's not just talking about the God-man who is God and man, but it is this powerful ruler and reigner, reigner, (laughs) victorious one, reigning over all things. It is so packed full of meaning that it's not just our minds are, I think we're just slowly grasping as Christians the power of who this Son of Man being presented before the Ancient of Days and then that dominion and power and glory is given over to Jesus. For those of you who are here during our prayer time today in John 17, we see Jesus acknowledging what God the Father has done for him. As Jesus is being presented before the Ancient of Days, he says, you are now giving me this power. The very things that are being prophesied in this occurred in the incarnation, in life, in death, in resurrection, an ascension of Jesus Christ. It's, it's all lumped in the same, but it happens even at the moment of incarnation. We're about to celebrate Christmas that this great fulfillment of this prophecy of Daniel happens and things change on the earth. We didn't see the transition from Old Covenant to the New, but the power that Satan had over the whole world was diminished and crushed. And what little bit of influence that it still has has only been granted by the power and the authority of God. And when that happened, the gates burst forth and all nations and all languages were released to hear the word of God. Satan lost his power. He fell from heaven like lightning is what Jesus said at the power of what occurred in the incarnation and life of Jesus Christ. And then to see this last verse that I read for you, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, just go home and study that for the rest of your life. (laughs) I can't give it justice in the time that I have. I've thought about it. How can I... You know, rally this up. It overwhelms me. I pray that God would give you, give us the glimmer of seeing the glory of that being fulfilled in Christ. But I ask you, as we look at this particular passage and see now that this is why it cut to the quick of these people. We again, I've said this over and over again. We we cut the scribes and the priests short. 
These guys studied the word. In fact, as Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees. We come in here with this haughty mindset that the Pharisees are a bunch of bumbling idiots, legalistic idiots. No, they knew the word of God. And thus sin captivated their hearts. But they knew the word of God. They knew the law of God better than we do. And so when he says this, you, this is why they react the way they do. See, we wouldn't react that way. If I, if I said something even bad about the Son of a Man, y'all probably just shrug that off and say he's just some goofy pastor. They, would, they, they took it seriously because they took the Word of God seriously, but still in their sin, it kept them from recognizing that the Son of Man was right before them. So don't have that mindset toward them. Desire to be at least at the level that it would actually disturb you to hear someone talk about the Son of Man that they had such great honor and wanting to know who was this going to be and what was going to be the nature of this kingdom. Let it be that we would have that same kind of hunger and desire as we look at this. We can see with this tremendous reaction that they had against Stephen was not just something petty that they just got their toes stepped on. So I ask you, what do you hold in your hands? We see here in multiple phases of this particular passage in Acts chapter 7, we see that the scribes and the priests, they were holding their ears. They couldn't handle it anymore. They couldn't handle the fulfillment of the things that they had read. They had had their ears open to at least understand by knowledge what was the Son of Man and who in the prophecy of what Daniel had to say, but here as it was being fulfilled, they couldn't handle it. They covered it up, their ears, and they screamed, and they ran at him with vengeance. They held in their hand vengeance, as they also held in their hands to ignore anymore. They couldn't handle the cut of that knife or that sword going into their heart. Well, we see what's in their hands. What is in the hand of Stephen? Well, we know what's not in his hand, but what he has to say. There at the end, he says, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. He had released bitterness and vengeance from his hand and asked the Lord to release vengeance from his hand Upon this, his prayer for his persecutors was that the vengeance of the Lord would not be placed upon those who killed him. Where did Stephen learn to pray like this? But from the very words of Jesus Christ when he was on the cross. Jesus said before his father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And now here is Stephen before the church, before the world, and he says to Jesus, into your hands I commit my spirit. My hands are empty from vengeance and wrath, and I ask, Lord, that you would be empty from this wrath upon them. He wanted mercy to be played out upon these people who were killing him at that very moment, just as Jesus prayed for those when he was on the cross. So this leads us, what is in the hand of Jesus? Jesus has, obviously, all power and authority. He has all power over sin and death. 
he actually does have, and he is the only one that has the power of vengeance in his hand. As we are taught in Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Jesus has in his hand all power and authority over sin and death. When he was incarnated into flesh, when he walked upon the earth, when he came to the cross, when he rose from the grave, when he ascended into heaven, Satan lost his power over the world. He lost his power over you. That is why in the New Testament that we can actually receive instruction to resist the devil and he will flee. Well, how could that be? You, you have to understand the power that Satan has. That has been diminished and crushed. He is limited for whatever purposes the Lord has. And I'm not going to go down that road into the full eschaton of what is going on in the end days. But it is no longer over his people. Because Jesus has been given a true power and authority. It's not just poetic language. Things changed when these things occurred. And it means something for us today. So let's look at Stephen. If we are now called to take on this power and authority, that we have this kingdom before us, if, if the power of God is real in our life, what can we learn from Stephen to enter into that, into our life today? And I want to give you five things to take with you that is in the obituary of Stephen that I formed for you earlier First of all, Stephen was full of God's word. He was full of God's word. He obviously, throughout this whole sermon, has been in the word of God. When it says in verse 5 of chapter 6 that he was full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, that faith was not just a nominal faith that, oh, I believe in God and he's been taking care of me and... He helped me get better or helped me get that job. I'm not wanting to diminish that power that God has in real things in our life. He had full of faith because he had trusted the promises of God found in his word. Stephen was full of the word. We need to be full of the word. Stephen, secondly, was full of an understanding of God's grace and mercy for himself. It says that he was full of grace and power. Think about that. When you are full of grace, that means you have encountered an understanding of the power of what mercy God has given to you as a wretched sinner. Do you know? Have you experienced through your own repentance an understanding of how wretched you are. And have you encountered and have you been told or do you understand what power and love that Jesus had to die for sinners? Stephen was full of grace 
because he had experienced and understood the grace of God. And when you have that, when you have that understanding of the grace that you have from God, it takes away a lot of performance anxiety. It takes away a lot of bitterness. If every encounter that you have with a family member or a coworker or just a flat-out enemy irritating person in your life or a persecuting government or an idiotic government or bad church leaders or idiotic church leaders, when you encounter those things and you are full of grace by truly coming to an understanding of your own wretchedness, wretchedness, you're going to be like Paul and say, I am the chief of sinners. That's why I think it's important for us not to give the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests such a hard time. Because we don't even know these guys. We see some of the things that they did, but we know ourselves. Not as well as God knows us. But we know how wretched we are. And Stephen understood what kind of grace he had received. Therefore, when he is standing before those who are throwing stones in his face, he can pray that the Lord would actually grant grace to them. Thirdly, he was full of fear and the insight of what the Lord has done in redemptive history and through his law. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. It says in chapter 6 that Stephen's wisdom was unmatched. They could not speak around Stephen in his wisdom. It is because Stephen had an understanding of the fear of the Lord, had an insight to the character of God in his law. They could not match that. And have you noticed that every time they mention something about Stephen, it's got the spirit right there. These things are granted to Stephen by the Holy Spirit. Fourth, his eyes were on Jesus. His eyes and his gaze was on Jesus. It wasn't on his persecutors. His eyes were on Jesus, and we already know from before he even begins this sermon, he is in the presence of God. His face is glowing. God's presence is with him. His eyes are set on him. And ultimately, and lastly, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. It is so obvious throughout that the Holy Spirit resided in him. He was bearing forth the fruits of the Spirit. And every single one of these things, all five of these things, are granted to us by that power and the authority that Jesus Christ accomplished in his life, death, resurrection, and reign. This is for us. If we run to him and take refuge in him, this is for us. I put in the bulletin, the order of worship, a reference to Romans 12. I encourage you to go and read all of Romans 12. I referenced it moments ago. Read that 
look at the characteristics and the calling of what the people of God are to be. And they will match what Stephen is doing because Stephen is matching who Jesus is. And I encourage you to go on into Romans 13, especially now, as we hear this edict from King Biden that he's going to mandate every business with 100 or more employees to take the shot. Thankfully, the 5th District of Appeals has slowed it down, but who knows how well that will work. Have you thought about where you're going to stand in that? And why you're going to stand a certain way? How does that relate to Romans 13 when it says to submit to all earthly authorities? Now, I didn't know that Daniel was going to be here today, but my brother Daniel over here, not the prophet, (laughs) has thought this through. He has laid out, he has been studying the word and the law of God, and he has thought this through. And he has submitted himself humbly to the Lord. A lot of us are going to react and say, I'm not going to do it. But they would have no way to answer how this relates to Romans 13. Now, I'm not saying that Romans 13 is telling us to do it. But we as a church, I believe many of us are not equipped to take on the things that are going to be placed in front of us and the decisions that we have to make. We already have it. Church attendance is down 30%, if not 50%, in some places throughout the world because of a flick of a decision to just shut things down. And we go, okay. I do want to encourage you in this one thing, just so that you don't leave here, thinking that as I reference Romans 13, that you're to submit yourself to anything that a ruler says. Remember what kind of government we have. We are a constitutional government. And a constitution is a contract and covenant of agreements. That is what power is granted to those who are in office. They do not have absolute power and authority. Just as we are doing our work in this church by a constitution, I do not have absolute authority as a pastor. So we bind people to one keep their word, and we are bound, as my brother-in-law so eloquently articulated, we are also called to not bear false witness by accepting things that are a lie, by accepting things that are made up, (laughs) that are made to fear, to bring fear upon the people of this world, to to cause people in the church to fear, And we are called not to fear because our king is in authority over all things. Just a small tangent. I want to end end the sermon today by talking about another vision. And this is just an introduction for you. But I pray that it will be an encouragement and an admonishment for you. In Revelation chapter 1, please turn with me to verse 10 of Revelation chapter 1. And I will close with this passage. This is attached to the prophecy of Daniel. And as you think about what is in your hands, are your hands over your ears? 
when you're called to be more in the word? Is there vengeance and bitterness in your hands toward your brother, toward your neighbor, toward your enemies, toward your persecutors or future persecutors? What Are you holding on to Jesus? And if you're uncertain to let go of your ears and to let go of the vengeance and the bitterness that may be in your hands, to grasp on to Jesus, may you look in this passage and be reminded where Jesus' hand and what is in his hand for us today. In verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. This is John who was given a tremendous revelation of the reality of where Christ is and will come. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Paragon, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden shash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. In his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Have you seen this transition that this glory that once was the ancient of days has been now given to the Son of Man? And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died And behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars of the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church, before I read that, think about what's going on here. The glory of the ancient of days, the glory of the Father has been granted to the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus now has won and accomplished all glory, all power and dominion. He has in his hands the keys of Hades, the keys of death. He has that power. And that authority. And here he is laying his right hand on John, who has fallen down like dead, and said, Fear not. Let me explain to you what I am doing right now. In my right hand are the angels over the seven churches, and I am walking amongst the lampstands, which is the churches. He is walking amongst his people. 
He has this power. He has this glory. He has accomplished all the things that his father has set him out to do. And that father has been pleased to give him this glory. And now he says, now to the angel of the church in Ephesus, this is in chapter 2, verse 1, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. This is a very encouraging beginning. He's saying, I know the things. He's just talking about people who are being faithful, people who are enduring for the name of Christ, who are enduring the calling that they have been given. But verse 4 says, But I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, nations, <laughs> which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Brothers and sisters, you're obviously here this morning. You're not staying at home and just popping in some podcast. But brothers and sisters, we should open our ears to our righteous king. Have you lost your first love? Yeah, there's things that we're doing, but have our hearts been cut? I know that at least one, if not more, of those scribes and priests, when their hearts were cut, were eventually cut to repentance. And we, too, even those who are those among the faithful, we are called to evaluate by the word of God. Do we want to be like Stephen? But ultimately, do we want to be what Christ said? Do you think that you can bear this cup? Do you think that you can bear the baptism in which he was baptized? This table is a serious table. Jesus ends that saying, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, But can you bear this cup? As you stand before your persecutors soon, you may have to stand just by going home and dealing with a family member. Are you equipped like Stephen? Are you full of grace and power? Are you full of faith and spirit? Are you full of the fear of God and wisdom? Are you full? Of Jesus and the Spirit of God. He says, Come. He ends Revelation with come. The people of God call out 
and says, come. Come to this table saying, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I will take this cup, but Lord, you need to fill me. You need to teach me. You need to fill me with your spirit. You need to fill me with your wisdom. And when you pray that, he will do that. He will always fulfill that promise for those who take refuge in him. Let us pray.